As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Well, it's Mother's Day today, so I wanted to start out by relating a story of my mother that I think illustrates a point driven home in this passage of Scripture, this teaching about Jesus and his love and care for us. It was 2016, so a couple years ago, and my mother was staying with my sister after my father had passed away. She had early onset Alzheimer's, and so uh, she couldn't live by herself, and her failing memory would cause her to get quite anxious at times. My sister and her family did a wonderful job caring for her, reassuring her, providing her some stability after my father passing away that, that eased a lot of these issues, but sometimes it helped to have my mother call me in Montana. I would often get a text message from my sister saying, if you have a few minutes, please call mom. I think it would help. And I generally knew what that meant. So on this one particular occasion that I'm thinking of, I called and my sister put my mother on the phone. Her face, er, her, not her face, her voice was shaky and jumbled. Her breathing was a little shallow and she was crying softly. It was hard to hear my mother in this state, but I knew it wasn't truly her. It was the disease that was robbing her of her faculties her competence, her personality. She was kind of super mom growing up in the neighborhood, caring not only for us as kids, but for looking out for neighbor kids as well. Asking her, after asking her to take a few deep breaths with me, I asked her if it would help if I sang her a song. Because one of the memories I have is after church, usually for the rest of that Sunday, I would be hearing hymns as she was making lunch or dinner or cleaning the house. And um, she loved to sing, and she loved the music of the church. And um, I reasoned that if I could find a reassuring memory in her subconscious, I might be able to relieve a little of her anxiety in that moment. And she said, yes, that, that would be nice. So I began, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And when I finished, she said, that was very nice, thank you. I asked her if she recognized the song, and she said, no, I don't think so. I asked her if she'd like to know who taught me that song, and that it was her. That she was my mother, and that she was the one who taught me the song, and also taught me how to love Jesus, and that Jesus loved me. She simply said, Oh, well, I guess I did all right. Yeah, Mom, you did. As tremendous as the love of a mother 
can be and is, it's still just a shadow of the love of God through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And that blows us away, because we, we feel that mom maternal love. And we're moved by it, especially as we think about stories such as the one I just shared. Our passage today takes us through both how the love of Jesus affects us and and what the love brings about in us as a result. We'll start with the love of Jesus as example, evidence, and I'll throw in a 3E just because I liked the um, sort of alliteration, the evangel or good news in us. And then Real quickly, what significance being a friend of Jesus has in our lives. So first, the love of Jesus as example, evidence, and evangel. The passage starts out, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. So first, example. Jesus' love as example. It says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. That love that Jesus has for you is the kind of delighting and friendship love that, that he wants to be with you. Now, Inner Mountain, where I served as the chaplain, has this idea of a child being lovable but not livable, right? And if, if you've ever uh, been around a child or been in a situation where you're caring for a child that has got some mental health issues or some severe emotional disturbance, they're acting out in all sorts of unhealthy ways, you can understand what it means to, to love that child but understand that they're not livable. That that behavior isn't sustainable in the home. Livable comes from learning the concepts of healthy relationship, what it means to be in a relationship with one another. Healthy relationships make the lovable more livable. It, It makes it easier to like somebody if they're livable, whether that's a child or a spouse or a coworker. Well, here's the issue in the church for many of us. We're convinced that God loves us, but doesn't like us that much. Because we reasonably look at our sin and our fallenness and the things we continue to struggle with, our unlivableness, if you will, and think, sure, God loves me, because he, you know, he has to. But does he like me? Does he want to spend time with me? I don't even like me. And that's the trouble. Lots of people are out there, maybe even ourselves. We approach the understanding of the love of God through our understanding of our self-love or self-hate and love of others. And to, to do that, to even try to relate our way of loving one another to God's way of loving us is impossible. We can't can't possibly grasp the depth of Jesus' love for us without supernatural intervention. 
That's why Paul prayed. He prayed for the Ephesians church, for this, for this fact that they couldn't possibly understand how much God loved them. And he writes in Ephesians chapter 3, starting with verse 14, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all of the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that, what? Surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the full measure of all the fullness of God. This should be an encouragement to us. If our experience of God's love is dependent upon our ability to grasp it intellectually, well, then we might fear that we, we will lose God's love or lose the sense of God's love when our faculties fail us, as my mother's did at the end of her life. The example that Jesus' love leaves us is that God's love for us is constant, unfailing, irresistible, wholly independent of our acceptance or refusal. For many of us, this unconditional love of God is what drew us in. As the Bible says, we love because he first loved us. Leading me to the next point. Our love, then, is evidence of the love of Jesus remaining in us. Our obedience to Jesus' command to love is not a prerequisite to his love for us. Kind of like, well, I'm going I'm to wait till I see some evidence in your life that you're loving others. Then, then you'll get to experience my love. It's evidence that his love is already broken into our lives, our hearts, and our minds. The passage says, verse 10, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Jesus' goal, God's goal for us, is joy. To have the delighting, friendship-fueling, love-remaining relationship with him and with one another that, that Jesus enjoys with the Father. That's what he's saying. Like just as, just as God the Father and I have been connected in this loving, friendship sort of way, that's what I want for you. Our ability to love others well springs from our experience of the love of God, our experience of the love of God, not just our knowledge of it. We love others because of our felt experience of Jesus' love for us. And we can't always explain it. We've been in those moments, right, where somebody or some situation has done everything possible to make it really hard for us to extend love and acceptance but somehow we're able to. We aren't in control of it, certainly, but flooded by God's love, awash in the grace and acceptance that we have known, we simply become a conduit of that love to others. We aren't the source of that love. It's not like we get to pat ourselves on the back and say, wow, how loving and accepting I am that I can tolerate this fool child in front of me right now, or whatever the situation is. We're just able to do it because 
God has first filled us. And this process, I don't know about you, but for me it brings about joy. When you realize, okay, I don't have the power to love as I should, but in this moment, I'm very aware that God is loving this individual through me. Which brings me to the next point of this first section of the gospel passage today. The love of Jesus is, has been seen as our example, and now our evidence, um, our love being, being something that pours out from the evidence of, of our experience of that love, and now our evangel. What do I mean by that? Well, evangel, besides being another E word, which I thought was cool to go along with example and evidence, is it's an archaic way of saying the good news, right? So if you've heard the term evangelist, it's coming from, from this word, okay? A couple hundred years ago in Middle English, it had a sense of uh, gospel, right? So to preach from the evangel. It's from the old French evangelie being via the ecclesiastical Latin and Greek, euangelion, which means good news. From euangelos, bringing good news, and you, meaning uh, well and angelion, to announce. So I'm, I'm announcing something good to you in telling you the good news. So evangel, the gospel. And perhaps this, this point is better illustrated with a story than taught exegetically. Have you heard the story of the World War II Army Private First Class Desmond Doss, whose life and heroics were featured in the 2018 Oscar award-winning film Hacksaw Ridge? Anybody seen it? Well, Doss grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia. He was a Seventh-day Adventist, which meant that he was a pacifist. So even in the face of the axis of evil, right? The, the Nazis and um, the war that was going on in the Pacific. He, he didn't believe in violence and he chose not to bear arms. But his beliefs and his job as a defense industrial industry worker provided him a, a draft exemption during the war, but he, he dismissed that. He dismissed that chance to defer. He wanted to serve his country so he enlisted in the Army Medical Corps as a non-combatant. Because of his conscientious objector status, including his refusal to handle duties on Saturday, which was his Sabbath, well, boot camp was not easy for him. He was threatened and harassed. Many of the other recruits threw shoes at him while he prayed. They even tried to have him transferred out of their unit. They weren't successful, though, and Doss went on to graduate basic and serve with the 307th Infantry, 77th Infantry Division. In late April 1945, 26-year-old Doss and his battalion were called upon to help fight near Urasomura, Okinawa, in a campaign that would be one of the last and the biggest in the Pacific. Using cargo nets, Doss's battalion was tasked with climbing this treacherous 400-foot-high jagged cliff nicknamed Hacksaw Ridge just to get to the plateau. Awaiting for them on the plateau, thousands of heavily armed Japanese soldiers entrenched in hidden caves and holes. During the month-long campaign, Doss treated several injured men, dressing their wounds right in front of the enemy before dragging them to safety. 
about a week into the fight, Das was the only medic available to advance with the rest of the men, who were close to taking the ridge from the enemy. It was his Sabbath, but Das joined his men anyway, just as the Japanese concentrated massive artillery and other heavy fire on them. The assault left many dead and injured soldiers in its wake. The remaining Americans were driven back down the escarpment, except for Das. He was the only one to remain with the wounded. Over the span of several hours, Das treated the injured and one by one dragged them to the edge of the cliff and lowered them to safety in a rope sling. After each successful delivery, he said, Dear God, let me get just one more man. By nightfall, he had rescued 75 soldiers, including many of the men who had berated him earlier in his military career. Amazing, but his heroics don't end there, though. Days later, as the Americans continued their slow advance, Das was seriously wounded in the leg by a grenade. Instead of calling on another medic for help, he treated himself and then waited five hours to be rescued. As he was being carried back to the aid station, his unit was attacked again. Das insisted that another badly injured soldier take his spot on the stretcher. So now he's continuing his trek on foot, and he's hit by a sniper, shattering his arm. He managed to make a splint out of a rifle stock, and he eventually made it to the aid station for treatment. There was confusion over Das's whereabouts, however, so he was reported dead. The news even made it back to his hometown of Lynchburg, Virginia, where it made the front page. Das cleared up the confusion by writing a letter to his mother, proving that he was, in fact, alive. In October 1945, Doss was brought back to the States and had the bullet removed from his shattered arm. After the surgery, he was taken straight to Washington, D.C., where President Harry Truman placed the Medal of Honor around his neck. During his military career, Doss also received the Purple Heart and the Bronze Star, all without harming another human being. As for those men who had shamed him during boot camp, they had nothing but praise for him after the war. He was one of the bravest persons alive. And then to have him end up saving my life was, well, was the irony of the whole thing, said Captain Jack Glover in a documentary about Doss's life. Glover had wanted Doss out of the unit when he first joined up. What changed Captain Glover's mind? Was it not the Example, evidence, and evangel, the living out of the gospel in Private Doss. We're moved by a story because it exemplifies a life captured by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything Doss did in his acts of heroism was motivated by his understanding of what it would mean to act like Jesus Christ would have on that battlefield. And friends, that battlefield may look a little differently but the war still rages. A war not fought for territory, flag, country, or physical lives, but for the eternal souls of men, women, and children.
Are we up to the challenge? Will we stay on the battlefield when everyone else falls back? Can we drag to safety not just our friends, but, but those who openly oppose us, ridicule us, and shame us? When wounded and hurt, will we continue to sacrifice our comfort for the sake of others? Willing to endure greater injury because our hearts have been captured by the love of Christ? If we remain in the love of Jesus, if we allow the source of our love for others to come from our experience of God's love for us, it just may be possible. That's why our friendship relationship with Jesus is so important passage today concludes by making this point in very relatable terms, the difference between a servant and a friend. Because the love of Jesus for us changes the relationship equation. Verse 15, Jesus is talking to his disciples, he says, I no longer call you servants. For a servant doesn't know what the master does. I have called you friends. For everything that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Now, honestly, there is nothing wrong with being known as God's servant. The people called by God are often referred to as the Lord's servants, from from Moses to Joshua to David, uh, Paul and Titus 1.1, James and James 1.1, he introduces himself as the Lord's servant. Jesus himself acted as a servant to the disciples at the, the foot washing, the Last Supper, as an example of what Love-guided leadership should look like in the kingdom of God. However, now Jesus calls the disciples friends, saying, but I have called you friends for everything that I have learned and heard from my Father I have made known to you. A master gives servants orders. Like, no, you will help. Even when you walk in into Mass, you don't know what that means. A master gives servants orders, but a friend communicates with friends, shares intimacies and trust. This is, this is more than your boss at work having an open-door policy, which is maybe the way you think of your relationship with God. Jesus says, open the door to the throne room of grace, and you are welcomed in. Sound familiar? Have you ever heard anybody put it that way? And that's true. There's an open door policy to us, but, but if we think about it in terms of that servant mentality, it's just like our boss having the open door policy where we really know, don't interrupt the boss. Do your work. It's a bit more than that, this relationship we have with Jesus. This is This is the 2 a.m. open door of love between best friends. This is the backpacking with the buddies' midnight confessions around the campfire of trusted confidants. This is the embrace of another who has endured your heartache and understands that there are times that words are wholly inadequate. This is the love that Jesus has for you. He has called you his friend, his best friend. His friendship enriches and sustains us in a life where it is our joy to go out then and bear the fruit of a life lived well. 
says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. I command these things to you that you may love one another. You didn't choose me. I chose you. Right? Now, maybe you've heard this point before, that, that it was standard practice in first century Palestine that, that students would seek out a rabbi. And if you could connect yourself to, to an important rabbi, then, that, then you were kind of set. You were set towards the, uh, being a rabbi yourself. And the, and the greater the rabbi, the more students would seek his assistance. Now, now Jesus, however, tells his disciples, ah, it didn't work that way. I chose you. And it's a great honor to apprentice under a great rabbi. So we assume, right, that Jesus then would, being God, would pick the best and the brightest, right? Womp, womp. Not so much. We'd be wrong if we were to think that. These disciples hardly qualify as quick to learn. In fact, they're described as slow to learn. A bit thick-headed. Weak of faith, sometimes denying, sometimes doubting. A few, such as Peter, James, and John, they might become a little more prominent, but even they often fear off, veer off course. Most of them are going to remain obscure. One of them is even going to betray him. But these followers of Jesus did great things because it was clear that Jesus was working through them to do his will and work about his ways of the kingdom. These disciples did great things, not because they were great, but because Jesus was great. And that's the important lesson here. God chooses whom God chooses. God empowers whom God empowers. Why belabor this point? Well, because I think seeing that God's work is done by ordinary people, distinguished by only one characteristic, that they had given God their hearts, should encourage us. It should also make us hesitant to judge any person's potential which, like it or not, does happen in the church a fair amount. Your most important ability, anybody else's most important ability, is their availability. Allowing yourself the realization that Jesus chose you, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. He chose you. He chose you because he wanted you, and he wanted you so that you could have joy. Not so that you could do a job for him. The joy of knowing a fruitful and purposeful life. Jesus says that he appointed his disciples to go and bear fruit. He doesn't specify the fruit, but the disciples are appointed to bear the fruit that that God appoints them to. The branch on the vine, like we talked about last week, the branch on the vine doesn't choose the fruit that grows from it. If I'm a branch and I'm connected to Jesus, I'm going, well, today I'm feeling like oranges. You know. Tomorrow, grapes. That's not the way it works. The branch takes on the characteristics of the vine and produces the fruit in keeping with the vine that it's attached to. If we're to produce fruit for Christ, it's important that we seek his will for our lives, to let him direct our ways and the expectation of what will result from our work which is first and foremost to remain in his love. 
as we remain in his love, we will produce a fruit that will remain. Some people are called to produce reports or statements that are relevant from anywhere from a few hours to a few weeks. Others build vehicles that may last a few years to a decade. Others construct homes that are going to last several decades, or maybe if we're lucky, 100 years. Points disciples to bear fruit that will last for centuries, for eternity, forever. One final point. That's a clarification of what it means to ask for anything in Jesus' name. Because we can get a little carried away with this. Earlier in John 15, Jesus said, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, you will ask whatever you desire and it will be done for you. The person who remains in Christ, who becomes one with the Son as the Son is with the Father, becomes so attuned to the will of God that, that God will give that person whatever he or she asks in Christ's name. Asking and receiving become as natural a process as the branch growing on the vine. It's, it's not that I get what I want when I want for my purposes, but it's that God does what God wants when God wants through and in me as I grow in my experience the knowledge and will of God. In just a few short weeks, it's my intention that we will embark as a church on a process where we will dwell for some time in these biblical concepts of knowing, discerning, and doing the will of God, both as individuals and as a fellowship called Desert Springs Covenant Church. I'll preach through the summer on these principles. You'll have the opportunity to study individually and in small groups. We'll pray together. We'll seek together all that God has for us as a church. And we'll do this as friends. Friends of one another and friends of Jesus. Drawn closer and closer to one another as we draw closer to the Savior who calls us friend. Let's pray. Jesus, it is seriously beyond our comprehension that you would choose us. And in choosing us, you wouldn't just choose us to be a servant, but that you would choose us to be a friend. To be friend of the Lord of the universe is, is an awesome thing, more than we could possibly grasp. Help us to remain in your love so that more and more each day we would understand what it means to be your friend. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray.